Good evening, everyone, and welcome. It is Wednesday, September the 16th, 2020. It is currently 521 p.m. Central Time. I'm coming to you live from Victory Baptist Church located here in Ovalo, Texas. Now, this is going to kind of serve as the Wednesday evening sermon for Victory Baptist Church tonight. Um, I came out here early. I did one hour of live broadcasting. I wanted to do a lot more, but for those who know me, you know that I have a seizure disorder based off something happened to me in the military. I'm not going to go through all of that story again. But because I have a seizure disorder, right now I'm having that kind of feeling where my head is not doing so well, and uh, I think a seizure is on its way. So I I didn't want to, uh, you know, not accomplish anything for a Wednesday night. I didn't want to leave the people with no message. And because we're live streaming only right now because of someone in their church who was tested positive for COVID. Um, so because of all of that, then I can, technically I can kind of do something now and then just have it ready to go. And then people can listen. Those who are listening live now, great. If you're not listening to me live and you listen to it later, great. I apologize for not being live on the air right at seven, but this will get us probably close till set to seven. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to undertake a big, a big subject here and hopefully I can handle this. And hopefully if I mess up speaking more so than I do so uh, on a normal basis, okay, I always make a mess up somehow. But if I mess up in a really big way, I apologize. Hopefully I don't say anything crazy or heretical or heretical. But yes, my head is not, not doing so well. So pray that I can make it through at least the next hour, bring you something that is beneficial, spiritually edifying, that will challenge you to think, and hopefully I can advance our study in Romans chapter 6 a little further in this in this message because that's the goal. Now, if you've been with, with us, if you've been paying close attention, we have been working hard on the book of Romans. It's, it feels like we've been in the book of Romans now for about 10 years. I know it hasn't been that long, but it feels that way. But this book has proven to be very difficult. And probably one of the most frustrating things about studying the book of Romans is that when you go listen to countless sermons that are posted all over the internet from church after church after church, they, 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 they move rapidly through some of the sections in Romans. And they seem to act like there's no difficulty. They seem like, oh, you know, there's this view and this view, but here's the right answer. Let's move on. And, and I'm like looking at it going, what are you talking about? This, the book of Romans is filled with, with some very difficult sections. Romans chapter two telling us we're going to be judged according to our deeds. Well, wait a minute. How am I going to be judged according to my deeds? And many pastors are like, well, he doesn't really mean we're going to be judged according to our deeds. He just means that's hypothetical. If you were judged according to your deeds, well, obviously you wouldn't be saved. Or others were like, well, no, no, you will be judged according to your deeds because your deeds, they're going to prove if you're saved or not saved. Well, wait a minute. What should prove that I'm saved is the finished work of Jesus Christ that's been accredited to my account. So are you not then destroying the gospel of grace? Like what, what's going on here? But in almost every case where someone acts like it's simple, if you really just dig in, really just start asking a couple of questions, what appears to be so simple, you know, implodes on itself and you're left there with, you know, the crumbled building of their supposed exposition and there's nothing left. And you're like, well, okay, well now, now where do I go? So I'm trying to address the issues head on and trying to work through them. So 
Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we've dealt with the subject of sin. We've dealt with human depravity. We've dealt at how we are justified, that we are justified apart from the works of the law. We are justified by grace. We've talked about all of those things, really theological, really dealing with the subject of justification. But in Romans chapter 6, it seems to be a major pivot. And now we're kind of going from, okay, how are we saved? On what basis are we saved? The grace of God, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay, but now what should be the effects of that salvation? And Romans 6 seems to address this head on. And you may think, oh, well, that should be easy, but it's not. Now, if you remember, well, I'm not going to go back to the outline that we've provided. Let's just jump into Romans chapter 6, verse 1, and let me just set this up. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, if, we, if we're saved by grace and wherever sin abounds, well, grace abounds more, right? As, and that's stated in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Hey, if whenever I sin, grace abounds more, it's, it's a reasonable question. Then why shouldn't I just continue to sin? So what should your relationship and my relationship as a Christian, what should our relationship be to sin now that we are saved? Now, I need to take a drink of water really quick. All right, there we go. <clears throat> what should what should our relationship be to sin? This is an important question, and he and and so someone he Paul's either anticipating the question, maybe someone's asked the question, but the question is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he gives a simple answer in verse two: God forbid, God forbid. No, don't think that way. We should not continue in sin. God forbid. And then he makes this amazing statement in verse two: How shall we? that are dead to sin, live any longer therein. Hey, you're dead to it. So how can you live any longer in it? And then this raised all kinds of questions. What does it mean that we're dead to sin? What does this mean? And so we looked up uh, and we read all kinds of different explanations, commentary after commentary after commentary. And the commentaries were so frustrating because on one hand, they were like, you are dead to sin. You died to sin. When you became a Christian, you died in that, you died to sin. You're dead to it. You can't respond to it. You're dead to it, right? And almost spoke of, you know, as a result of your salvation, now the, it should be an immediate, profound effect. You should be living godly because you died to sin. And then we almost like almost to give you whiplash, all of a sudden they, they, they just rip the steering wheel the other direction and go, but, but you're not going to be perfect, but you're still going to sin. Well, wait a minute. I thought I was dead to it. Well, you're dead to it. It just means you won't live in it. Okay. What do you mean by live in it? Well, you know, you're not going to habitually sin. Well, wait a minute, but I'm going to sin every day in that habitually sin. Well, 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 well. And so they, there's all these like, like you're dead, but you're not really dead. You're dead, but, I mean, you're dead to sin, but you're going to sin. And it's like, no one would offer a very decent explanation of what it actually means to be dead to sin. And so we threw out a theory that to be dead to sin has to be possibly understood somehow from a positional perspective. And that maybe what we're looking at here is, hey, how can you continue to live in sin? You're dead to it. You died to it positionally, now you have to strive to live as if you're dead to it practically. 
So I think we're dead to sin positionally, and we have to try to live out that reality practically. That's kind of the theory we went with, all right? But we were going to allow Paul in the book of Romans to really explain what he means. So in Romans chapter 6, as we have looked, after he gives kind of this short answer, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He then begins to offer a lengthy explanation. And you would think the lengthy explanation would clarify this, but it raises a different problem. The problem it raises is in verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Stop. Wait a minute. So Paul is saying, What led to our death is baptism. When we were baptized into Jesus, we were also baptized unto his death. So what led to the death was the baptism. Okay, so what is Paul saying? Well, well, this raises all kinds of questions. What is this baptism? How do we experience this baptism? When does this baptism take place? How do we know we actually had it? Because the baptism is the thing that brings about the death. Because when we were baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, now we're dead to sin. So why can you no longer live in it? You're dead to sin. When did you die to sin? When you were baptized into Jesus, because you're also baptized into his death. Okay, wait a minute. I need to know exactly how this occurred. Because if we make this not a positional thing, we're making it a practical thing. I need to know exactly when this occurs, because this supposedly is going to make me dead to sin in a practical way. So when, what does this mean? Well, we started examining it on Sunday. We spent two hours on this on Sunday. The first hour, we looked at the Catholic position. The Catholic position says this happened when you were baptized with water. When water was sprinkled on you, you you died to sin. Now, the Catholic position is all weird because supposedly you died to sin. Grace was imparted, you know, you were infused with grace. Your sins were washed away. In other words, baptism actually brings about the regeneration. Baptism actually produces all of these spiritual results. It's not just a symbol. It actually brings this about, right? It's actually effective in bringing it about. But what's weird uh, with Catholicism is, okay, when you're baptized, you died to sin. However, you can continue to sin. In fact, you can commit a mortal sin thereby destroying the grace of God and then putting you out, putting you outside of a state of grace. And then if you die, you could ultimately go to hell. So, and even if I stay in a state of grace, I don't commit a mortal sin. I still may have to go to purgatory to be purged. So I don't know. Baptism supposedly does this powerful work, but it doesn't really last because you think about it. In the Catholic system, you're, if you know, unless you're converted as an adult, if you're, you know, as a child, you get baptized eight days old, Now, boom, you're dead to sin, you're infused with grace, your sins are washed away, and then before you know it, you're committing mortal sin, and now you're you're back to nowhere. So, So Catholicism acts like baptism pulls this off. Actual water baptism is what does it. It's practical, but you can lose it. So I struggle with the, the Catholic system seems more convoluted and more confused than some of the Protestant systems. Then we started looking at how some a Protestant pastor explained this. And the Protestant pastor kind of basically said, baptism here is actually salvation. And that the, the baptism, and then what, what Paul's trying to say is that water baptism symbolizes what happened. Well, Paul seems to be saying, no, the baptism did it. 
The, he, he doesn't say, he's not saying salvation. So what, 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 how some Protestants would say, well, the baptism here is really salvation. So we could really translate it. When you were saved, you were saved in Jesus and you were saved. You were, you were connected to his death. And as a result, you're now dead to sin. Now, of course, this Protestant pastor wanted to say that this is a practical effect, that, that you actually died to sin in a practical way. So the so what he wants to do is what they what this sermon that we listened to on Sunday uh, during the Sunday morning worship service we we spent an hour analyzing it and you're saying well why are you analyzing sermons during well because we're live streaming well I'm, I'm, I'm we're analyzing sermons during church because we're live streaming so we can kind of we can use technology to do all kinds of different things as long as we we help equip people so they're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So allowing them to hear these different doctrines, we can work through it. But So this Protestant position was really weird. So we've got the Catholic position. It's water baptism. It actually does it. Then we've got at least, now when I say the Protestant position, there are all kinds of different Protestant positions. But one Protestant position basically is saying the baptism here is salvation. And what Paul is talking about is how water baptism symbolizes what happened in salvation. That's a weird, that's a weird way. So is Paul speaking of, so when Paul says in Romans 6, 3, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, is Paul saying, hey, you're, it's almost like some Protestants want to say, your physical baptism, that Paul is speaking of the physical baptism and what the physical baptism symbolizes. Remember, the answer Paul's trying to answer is trying to, or is trying to explain how you died to sin. So if, if water baptism is simply a symbol, and that Paul is speaking of water baptism here as a symbol, well, that doesn't make any sense because what Paul's trying to explain is what actually led me to dying to sin. And it's when I was baptized into Jesus, I was also baptized into his death. Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism. So is he, is he speaking of the symbol? That baptism points to, or is he speaking of the, re- like, it's this weird, like, wh- what is going on here? Is Paul saying, hey, remember that physical uh, baptism? Well, that pictured what happened to you spiritually at salvation. Okay, maybe, maybe, but um, it, it, it still leads a lot of questions. So we have, let me try to summarize it this way. We have the Catholic view, it's actual water baptism and actually does something. We have a Protestant view that says, this isn't water baptism. This is salvation. But water baptism demonstrates what happened at salvation. But he's talking about a salvation that produced an actual result of you dying. Not positionally, but practically. So this one's a little convoluted. In fact, when we got done listening to that sermon, I don't know if we had even a, I don't know if we had a, I think we were more confused than we were helped. Even though he, the pastor, acted like he just explained it perfectly, we didn't understand. So what we're going to do in this hour, we're going to try to listen to another sermon that's going to offer a different perspective, all right? It's going to offer kind of a third perspective of what's actually going on in Romans chapter 6. This perspective says there is no water in this passage. This is a dry passage, no water baptisms being spoken of, a different baptism is being spoken of. We'll see what we think about this one, all right? So let's just jump in 
and we'll see how far we can get. I, I would like to finish this. This is a long sermon, so I don't know. I'm, go- I'm not going to be able to interrupt as much as I want, but I will interrupt, and if we need to stop this and break it into two parts, we will, but we'll see how far we can get tonight. So here we go. We invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 6 this morning, where we'll be continuing in this very tremendous revelation of what happens in the believer's life when he comes to Christ. The opening two verses of this chapter make very clear that the apostle is dealing here with um, the question of whether a believer can go on living in sin after he's come to Christ. Can he go on in a lifestyle that is basically wrong and sinful? Uh, that is, can he live as, as a alcoholic or a swindler or a adulterer or a homosexual or a slanderer or anything like that? Is it possible to maintain that as a lifestyle and still be a Christian? Now, the answer of the apostle, as we've already seen in our previous study in this, these two verses, is by no means it's impossible, he says. And the reason is because, as he puts it in four little words, we died to sin. Therefore, his conclusion is, how can we go on living in it any longer? Now, we've already looked at that uh, conclusion, but uh, beginning with verses 3 through 14 this morning, we want to see how the apostle begins to unfold this that we might understand in detail what that change means in our life. When you become a Christian, when you really, truly receive Jesus Christ as Lord, Something happens that makes it impossible to go on living a lifestyle of evil. We died to sin, and that is what we will be examining this morning. Now, he's, he's going from the perspective that, hey, when you become a Christian, you can no longer live a lifestyle of sin. Now, he's stressing the word lifestyle because this is the way a lot of people try to get around it. Hey, hey you're not going to live a lifestyle of sin, but let me state it again. You as a Christian, even though you're a Christian, you you still sin on a regular and consistent basis. You're living a lifestyle of sin. You don't love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. So you violate that every day. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy as I am holy. You don't fulfill that ever. So you live a lifestyle of sin. What we do is we just say you won't live a lifestyle of certain sins. Like you won't be a homosexual. You won't be an adulterer. Now, what do you mean by an adulterer? Because anytime a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery. So how frequently do men commit adultery by looking at a woman and having lustful thoughts? You know, we wouldn't even know. There's no way to even measure that or even know that. You can look at statistics and men and pornography, even within the church, they're pretty staggering. So does that mean none of them are saved? Like, do you start that, start down that path? Like, you know, like, it's just, it's just this weird thing that, that Christians do. You're dead to sin. So you can't live a, a lifestyle of sin. So your deadness to sin only make, only protects you from a lifestyle. That's not what the text says. 
So, so you can't live any longer in it, right? In fact, the actual word is uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Um, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You can't live in sin any longer. So, so what we do is we put the word lifestyle there. Okay, you can't have a lifestyle of sin. So, so you're dead, but you can still sin. It just won't reach the level of a lifestyle. So, so how bad? So, so David didn't live in a lifestyle of sin, but it got so bad. See that he did what? Oh yeah. He committed adultery. He tried to cover it up. He murdered the husband. Right? No, but hey, that can't, can't live a lifestyle. Some people say, well, 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 wait a minute. That's, that's, that was the Old Testament. So that doesn't count. Okay. How about the Apostle Paul who said, hey, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Well, you know, it couldn't have been, it doesn't mean he lived a lifestyle. Well, it seems like he seemed pretty, uh, that it seemed to be a pretty constant thing because the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things he didn't want to do, he ended up doing. Like, look, we, we, we try to find some weird way out of this. Like on one hand, we're like dead to sin means you're dead from its influence. You de- you're dead from its power. You're dead from but, 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 but you're still going to sin. It's just, it just won't be a lifestyle. It's like we play these word games. I, I don't know why we, tr- like, why do we play such word games and trying to get out of this? You look at the life of an average Christian, they sin. They sin all the time. So is that not a lifestyle of sin? If you sin all the time, is that not a lifestyle of sin? Well, it's not a lifestyle like a lost person. Okay, so we just change the types of sin we commit. But we're still sinning. I, I, I don't. So he's really going with this. It leads. He's not going for a positional. I think that we are dead to sin positionally and we strive to live it out practically. I think there's a positional reality that we try to live out practically that we will never live out practically. And that's why we have to rely on our position and not our practice for assurance and salvation. Because if I look to my practice for the assurance of salvation, I'll never think I'm saved. If I look to my position and the finished work of Christ, which has been imputed to my account, then I am sure of my salvation. So, all right, but he's definitely going there. But the, the issue here, we've talked about that. I just want you to see that that's, that's his first argument. But he wants to say, so now he wants to us, what we have to move to is, okay, if, we're, if we die to sin, even if we agree with his, his idea that this is a practical thing, how do we end up dying to sin? Paul's going to offer up baptism. When we were baptized into Jesus, we're also baptized into his death. This led to my being dead. So what baptism is this? That's what we're going to listen. That's what we're listening to this sermon to discover. What baptism is he going to, to, to speak of? Here we go. Now the apostle uses two figures to help us. These wonderful little visual aids that God likes to employ to help us to understand truth. One of them is baptism. And we'll look at that as we uh, go into this section. And the other one, which is maybe more difficult for you to see, is that of grafting as a plant or a branch is grafted into a tree. This is the figure he employs. Now let's look together at the, uh, what the apostle says about baptism. In verse 3, or I'll read both uh, the, from the beginning of the chapter that we may have it all together. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, it's always interesting to me when uh, some people hear the word baptism, they immediately smell water. <laughs> when I was a boy in Montana, I had a horse that could smell water farther off than any other animal I ever saw. And you could be riding across the dry parched plains and suddenly he'd pick up his ears and lift up his head and quicken his pace and you knew that somewhere he smelled water and was heading for it. And there are people like that who seem to read these passages and whenever the word baptism occurs, they smell water. You can see them pick up their head and lift up their ears and head off for it. <laughs> but I want to tell you, there's no water here. This is a... All right. So he doesn't believe the baptism spoken of here is water. He, he doesn't believe there's any water here. We've got the Catholic view, water. We had a Protestant view that said water, but not water. This is really salvation, but this is water. This is what he wants you to know that water baptism symbolizes what happened in salvation, which would just be confusing because why would he bring in water baptism symbolizes it because his issue here is not to try to argue what water baptism symbolizes. His, Paul, what Paul's trying to do in Romans chapter six is help you understand how you ended up dead to sin. He's trying to explain, you can't live in it any longer because you died to it. Okay, well, what does, when did I die to it? Well, then he talks about baptism. So he's, this person is saying, no water here. I want you to just realize, we could, we could spend literally months listening to all the different interpretations of this section, which is so crazy that we're all using the same book and we, we have, we have so little agreement on it. It's so frustrating at times, but let's see where he goes. I, to be honest with you, I like this idea that there's no water here. But I don't think, I think there's, I, I don't think this is symbol, I don't think this is even necessarily trying to give me a symbolism of water baptism. I don't even think it's necessarily doing that. We may argue that we borrowed this symbolism for water baptism. I think this is pointing to something else. We'll, we'll see, we'll see. I'm, maybe I'll change my mind as well. We always have to be open to have our minds change. But I think I'm going to agree with this, or at least in part. So let's see where, how he, where he ends up. Dry passage. So you're going to have to give me your careful attention as we go through this this morning because it's without water. It's dealing, of course, with the question of how we died to sin. That is, just how we became uh, separated from being in Adam and were joined in Christ. Now, there's no water can do that. That's something that requires something far more potent and powerful than water. And it is, therefore, a description for us of what is elsewhere in Scripture called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There you go. Now, he's making an argument that the baptism spoken of here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this could go a lot of different directions, all right? 
You have some who believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something you receive subsequent to your salvation. You get saved, then you have to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the way you know it is when you speak in tongues, all right? That's how it's demonstrated. That's how it's proven. Okay, that's the charismatic view. I obviously reject the charismatic view outright. I reject charismatic theology completely. I believe charismatic theology is a cancer on uh, historical biblical Christianity that needs to be surgically removed. It needs to be hit with a powerful dose of chemotherapy, which is called the Word of God, and historical biblical Christianity needs to remove uh, charismatic theology. Yes, that's a whole different sermon. So, so he's not, I don't think he's going to go the charismatic way, but he's referring to that what's happening here is how did you die to sin when you experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, when did you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And does that say, does that, will that lead us to truth with Romans chapter 6? Will it lead us to a correct interpretation? Let's see what he does here. All right, here we go. Remember John the Baptist, who, was, who, who made his reputation because he baptized in water, said, I indeed baptize you with water, but there comes one after me, greater than I, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. This is that baptism of the Holy Spirit which places us into Christ. Now Paul says exactly that in the passage that was read for our scripture this morning. Let me read it to you again. 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, these words. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Notice how he emphasizes twice that all believers were baptized into one body. We were placed into Christ. And you're not a Christian if that isn't true of you. Therefore, people who today who say you need to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit after you become a believer do not understand the Scriptures. There's no way to become a believer without being baptized by the Holy Spirit. It happened first historically on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit took 120 different people who were gathered in the temple courts and came upon them and fused them into one body and joined them to the head, which is Jesus, and thus formed the church, one body in Christ, all members one of another and members of the Lord Jesus himself. Okay. So what he is saying is that at salvation, in fact, salvation is, so if you want to argue, does baptism save you? This argument would be like, yes, it does. The baptism that saves me is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit of God, right, through the Word of God, all the different things that take place in salvation, but one of the things that place is the Spirit of God baptizes me, places me, immerses me, dips me, connects me into Jesus Christ, puts me into Jesus Christ. And now and not only puts me into Christ, puts me in the body. In fact, look at, uh, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He just read it. I'll read it to you again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Um, 
In fact, we can go back to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, we have all been made to drink uh, into one spirit. We're all in Christ. We're all in the body of Christ. We have been put into Christ. Now go back to Romans 6. This is the very similar language as used in Romans chapter 6, where Paul says in Romans 6, 3, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. By the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I was put into Christ. I was immersed into Christ. I was connected to Christ. I am in the body of Christ. I am, I am connected, united, identified with him by him. And what Paul is saying is that when that occurred, I was also placed and connected and immersed into his death. Therefore, I'm in Christ. I died in Christ. I want you to, I want you to listen. I argue this screams of the positional understanding of dead. I was, I was spiritually put into Christ. I was spiritually connected to his death. When Christ died, I died. I, I died. I was identified with his death. Therefore, positionally, how am I seen? I am seen as in Christ. The, the, the epistles, Ephesians, talk about being in Christ, in Christ. I am in Christ. How did I end up in Christ? By the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What happened? I was, when I was put in Christ, I was connected to his death. So the old me is dead and I'm a new creature. Positionally speaking, positionally, I am dead. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. Everything has become new in my position, in my practice. I'm still a sinner with a sinful nature who still falls, who still struggles. Now, the goal of the Christian life is to live out practically what I experienced positionally. And this all occurred at salvation, what is referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptized by the Holy Spirit, I was put into Christ, put into the body of Christ, my identity, and I was connected with his death. That makes some sense to me, all right? And that explains the word baptism there, all right? Let's continue. Now, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that's felt. It's not something you, you, can, you know when it takes place. It's something the Spirit does to our human spirit. And yet it's very essential to becoming a Christian. It's part of the process by which we share the life of Jesus Christ. Now notice some things that Paul says about this here in this passage. First, he says that it's something that we're expected to know about. Don't you know, he says, that we were all baptized into Christ, into his death? And here he expects these Roman Christians who had never met him and never been taught by the apostle to know this fact, something new Christians ought to know. Now, why would they know it? How would they know it? Well, now, here's where water baptism comes in. Water baptism teaches us by symbol the meaning of this baptism of the Spirit. One is the shadow or figure of the other. And here were people who had been baptized in water after their, after their conversion and regeneration. And Paul is supposing that that water baptism had 
help them to understand the reality of what the Spirit had already done to them. I was talking with Ron Ritchie some time ago, and he was telling me about an experience that he had on Easter Sunday when they had a baptism service over in the ocean near his house. And uh, they were baptizing people in the frigid waters of the Pacific Ocean. I tell you, you really have to love Christ to be baptized <laughs> in the Pacific. And uh, he, uh, he said a, a woman came up to him and brought her nine-year-old daughter, asked him to baptize the little girl. And Ron was a bit reluctant without uh, finding out whether the little girl really understood what was happening. So he began to question her and to teach her about uh, the reality behind water baptism. And he was gesturing to her and talking to her, and they were standing on the sand by the seashore. And he noticed that as he was gesturing, using his hand, that the shadow of it fell on the sand. And so he said to the little girl, you see the shadow of my hand on the sand? She looked at it. He said, now that's just a shadow. The hand is the real thing. And he said, when you came to Jesus, when you believed in Jesus, that was the real baptism. You were joined to him. And what happened to him happened to you. And then he illustrated. He said, Jesus, holding his hand up, Jesus was alive. Then he died, and was buried, and then he rose from the dead. And that's what happened to you when you believed in him. And he pointed to his hand, the shadow on the sand, and he said, you see, when you go down in the water, and you too are put into the water and raised up again, that's a picture of what has already happened. And she immediately caught on. She said, Yes, that's what I want to do because Jesus has come into my life. Now, that's what baptism is. Water baptism. Okay, I, I, I love where this is going, but I wish he would... Con- he, he, it's like he's, he's, he's got so much right here, but I wish he would connect it together. That spirit baptism, when all of that, where I, I was united in Christ, I was, in, I was put in Christ... I, I experienced, I basically what Christ experienced, I experienced because I was, I was placed into him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I experienced, basically I'm connected to his life. Why is that important? Because in his life, he kept the law on my behalf. So his obedience is imparted to me. We talked about, we talked about the, the imputation of the active and passive obedience of Christ. So his obedience of keeping the law, I'm connected with his life. That obedience is connected to me. I am connected with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All right? His active and passive obedience. I'm connected with all of that. So in Christ, I died. In Christ, I was buried. And in Christ, I was resurrected. And I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. All of that is my position. All of those things happen to me with no immediate change on me because I, I'm not truly dead to sin because I still am tempted by it, drawn to it, desire it. I'm not completely dead to the love of the world. I'm not completely dead to the, to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. All of those things still pull on me. I still desire many of those things. I still fall short over and over and over and over and over and over because I am dead positionally. I died, was buried and rose again. And I'm seated with Christ positionally 
in life, I'm not seated with Christ. I'm right here on earth, right here currently on this Wednesday evening. I'm sitting in the back of the sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church in Ovalo, Texas. I am very much alive. I have fleshly desires. I'm hungry right now. I'm experiencing physical pain. I'm having a massive headache right now and probably will have a seizure this evening. I don't want to have a seizure, but I will. All of the, 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 the things of the flesh, fleshly desires, they're all there. Right? I'm not saying hunger is, is, is a sinful desire. I'm just saying that my body is there and I have physical desires and can be tempted with all kinds of sin and sinful actions, sinful thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, sinful attitudes, et cetera, et cetera. You understand hopefully what I am saying. So guess what? Where am I dead? I'm dead in my position. Where was I buried? In my position. Where was I resurrected? In my position. Here, I'm still living my life. Now, I need to try to live out the reality of that. I should no longer continue in sin because I died to it. I died to it positionally. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. I am to view people as being a new creature in their, uh, in, uh, but because that is the truth of them positionally. Positionally, I'm a new creature. Positionally, old things are passed away. All things have become new. Practically, the old me is still very much present and still very much there. And to try to give anyone any indication of something different leads to simply disillusionment, frustration, and a feeling that Christianity doesn't work because we think we somehow get infused with some magical power and then boom, all those old desires are gone. I've seen it too many times. We, we've, we've witnessed it in Christianity too many times. I, I, I struggle. I'm struggling with homosexuality. Struggling. I'm, you know, someone comes to you. I'm struggling with homosexuality. I'm struggling with homosexuality. Okay. Well, in Christ, boom, you become a Christian. It'll all go away. Okay. I make a profession. I'm a Christian. Yes. I'm victorious over the homosexuality. I'm victorious over it. And then next thing, you know, what happens two, three, four, five years later, many of them begin to abandon Christianity and return to their homosexuality. What the answer is to some Christians is you were never saved. Okay. Or you sold them that they were going to get some magic power to overcome all sin. If you can just magically overcome homosexuality, why can't you just magically overcome the desire for heterosexual uh, sexuality, whether it's pornography, lust, fornication? Why do you, why can't you just magically overcome bitterness, gossip, slander? not loving people the way, why can't you just magically overcome all of it and it just, you're never going to struggle with it again? No, you're going to continue to struggle. You have to realize positionally, you, you are in Christ. It's all solved. It's resolved. It's done. It's finished. But I've got to struggle here trying to live out and practice what is true positionally, right? So it's like he's he's doing a very good job saying, hey, all of this happened. All of this happened spiritually, Right? And then I can demonstrate what happens spiritually, physically through water baptism. Water baptism doesn't actually make it happen. I don't actually die. I don't actually experience a resurrection. I'm symbolizing. I'm symbolizing what happened positionally, not what transpired in a practical way because practically I still struggle. I still sin. I still have a fallen nature. It did not magically go away. If I truly died, then the old nature should be gone. 
And I know there's some Christians who believe in the eradication of the old nature, but if you've ever heard the, met those Christians who believe in the eradication of the old nature, if you've ever worked with some, which I have, they clearly demonstrate the old nature is very present. They stab you in the back, they gossip, they slander, they lie, they, 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 they manipulate situations for their own advancement at the hurt of other people. I mean, I've seen all kinds of, hey, I don't have a sinful nature anymore. Yeah, and I worked with you for five years. You're a liar on top of not having a sinful nature. So, yeah, he's doing a very good job. I believe this is spiritual baptism with the baptism of the Holy Spirit puts me into Christ and unites me and immerses me into him. And now I'm identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Positionally, I have died. I was buried and and resurrected. Yes, water baptism may symbolize it. But what Paul is speaking of here is the spiritual baptism that unites me to Christ and connects me to his death, burial, and resurrection. So positionally, what does God see? Not the old Trevor, but the one who, but the the one who has died in his, uh, who's who's basically, I, I'm I'm united with the son. He sees his son. He doesn't see me because I'm dead. I'm connected with Jesus' life, his burial, his death, and his resurrection. All right, let's continue. Baptism is a picture, a symbol, worked out for us to teach us what has happened to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus. Now notice also that the apostle says, this is how we died to sin. The great statement of this passage is that when we became Christians, we died to sin. He's still discussing the question, can a believer go on sinning? No, he says, because we died to sin. Well, how did we die to sin? And This is how. The Spirit took us and identified us with all that Jesus did. I don't understand that. That means that somehow this is a timeless event. He, the Spirit of God is able to ignore the 2,000 years that have happened since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and somehow take us who live in this 20th century as he has all the believers of all the past centuries and identify us with that moment when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the dead so that we participate in those events. Now that's clear. I don't think we need to struggle with it because something similar has already been referred to in chapter 5. Remember in chapter 5 we're told that this is what happened to us in Adam. That being born into this human race, we became part of what Adam did. Way back at the dawn of history, Adam sinned, and we sinned in Adam. Now, I don't know how that's true fully, but I certainly believe it because every evidence of history demonstrates it to be true. Men sin from the moment they're born. Babies sin. Babies are filled with... uh, sinful attitudes and sinful reactions, as we've already shown. And if nothing enters their life to help them to learn to control these, they become, they grow up to be criminals and uh, rapists, murderers, because sin is there from the beginning. Therefore, this is not a fiction. See, this is not theological fiction. It's a fact. Adam sinned and we sinned. Adam died 
and men ever since have died. And it's a fact, and every funeral of all the ages has testified to the reality of that great fact. Now, all the apostle is saying is what was true of that in Adam has now been ended. And now we're in Christ by faith in Jesus our Lord. And thus, what Adam did affected us, so now what Christ did is our action too. Adam, or Christ died, and we died with him. Christ was buried, and we're buried with him. Christ rose again, and we rose with him. So what ha is true of Jesus is true of us. Now here he's dealing with what is probably the most the most uh, remarkable and certainly the most magnificent truth recorded in the pages of the Scripture. It's the central truth that God wants us to learn, that we died with Christ, were buried, and rose again with Him. That union with Christ is the truth from which everything else in Scripture flows. And if we understand and accept this as fact, which it is, then everything will be different in our life. And that's why the apostle labors so to help us understand this. Now notice one other thing about this paragraph, and that is the purpose for which all this happens. Paul says that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now remember, he's answering the question, can a believer go on sinning? His answer is absolutely no, cannot, because we have died and been buried and risen again with Jesus, and therefore it's all to the end that we may live a new life. That is, if you're a Christian, there will be a noticeable change of behavior because of a radical change of government. And again, he played this little game. Hey, you can't live in it any longer. Hey, you're dead to it. There's going to be a change. But please note, it goes from like, you're dead, there's going to be a change, but it's just going to be a significant change. I mean, it's not going to be perfection. I mean, it's going to be a change, but you can't get to perfection. It's like, so which is it? Like how much? It's like, it changes you, but not completely. You're dead. But you can sure walk into it and commit it and do it. Well, well, then that's not very dead. Does dead mean dead or does dead not mean dead? You're dead, but you can still sin. You're dead to sin, but you can still do it. You're dead to it, but you can still be tempted by it. You're dead to it. Well, then that's not very dead. Like, I, I, I don't get, like, how do pastors not hear the contradiction in their own words? Like, no, this, we... We experience all of this in a positional way. There's no other ways to get around it. There's no other way. You can't have it. You're dead. You're, 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 you're you know, you're going to have all this change, but, 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 and then make all of these exceptions. Well, you're going to sin, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, and just try to, try to make it. And I don't, I don't know how pastors can't realize how weird that sounds. We'll give him a little bit more time. He's already explained the baptism, so I don't know if there's much more to, to listen to, but we'll try to at least give it a little longer. You can't go on. If you do go on living as you were before, 
then your profession of Christianity is false. All right, here we go. All right, so how do you know if your profession of faith is false? If you live like you did before. Okay, now this is now this is where it's so weird. Like if you lived a lost life like I did, sold drugs, did drugs, I mean, the occult, all the different things that I was involved in, all the things that I did. Yeah, I could, I made a clean break from all, no, no more drugs, no more selling drugs, no more of the occult. There were, there were, there were some dramatic changes in my life. But just imagine if you're raised in a moral, a moral home, you're raised in a, you know, a moral upbringing. You never did drugs. You never were out on a Friday night. You didn't join a gang. You didn't kill anybody. You weren't carrying a gun. You weren't worshiping Satan. You weren't doing all these crazy bad things. You were just living a basic normal life, but you weren't a Christian. And now you become a Christian. Oh, now you can't do the things you did. Well, where's that dramatic change? Your profession of faith is going to be based off, off you change dramatically. Well, if there's no dramatic change to take place, where is that dramatic change going to show up? It's going to show up that, oh, now you love God more than anything else. Okay, well, do you ever truly love God? Like, how do you, how do you see this? I hate when pastors make the argument that the way you know you're saved is by looking at some practical thing in your life. No, the way I know I'm saved is because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and I am in him. I don't look to me for my salvation. Look to Christ. If I'm not looking to Christ and him crucified for my salvation, then I'm looking to what I do, which is no more different than a works-based system. Hey, we don't believe in a works-based system. We believe you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But hey, how do you know you're saved? You look at what you do. And if you don't see a substantial change to the way you used to live, well, then guess what? You're not saved. Well, what do you mean a substantial change? I never did drugs. I never slept around. I never hired a prostitute. I didn't, I didn't have an abortion. I didn't kill anybody. I was always a pretty moral person. Right? Well, if you were pretty, pretty much a moral per- poor person, now I'm pretty much a moral person. What do they look for for their dramatic change? Okay, well, you know, you know like I, it just leads to such a, like absolute confusion where you never truly know you're saved. I'm going to look to Christ and him crucified for my salvation. I'm not going to look to, well, okay, wait, I did this. Wait, I did that. Well, I've been saved. And after my salvation, there were times I went back and did things that related to my, I didn't go back to drugs. I didn't go back to alcohol, but there were other things I did that were wrong. Other sinful things that were more in line with my pre-Christian days than it was, that it should have been after my Christian days. Well, but, but you didn't, you didn't continue in it. You just, Oh, just stop it. You're making 9,000 exceptions to try to keep your theology intact. Am I dead or am I not dead? Well, I'm dead positionally. That's the only thing I know. We saw that already in the message we looked at in the opening verses here, that there must be a change, and there will be a change because of the new change in the heart of man. Now, verses 5 through 10 introduce a new figure for us and reveal a deeper revelation of what happened to us. Paul changes the figure now. And here he uses in verse... All right, we'll stop there because he answered the question. What is baptism? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. That So it is a baptism. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In that baptism, the Holy Spirit places me in Christ 
I am, and when I'm placed in Christ, I am connected to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that, that I experience all of that. And this is my statement. Positionally, I died, I buried, I'm ascended, I'm seated with Christ. Uh, not only did I experience the resurrection positionally, I, I experienced the ascension spiritually because I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. All right, I, I, that is my position. Practically, I'm still living here on this earth. I have still have a fallen nature. I'm still going to sin. I'm still going to fall short. Should I live a different life? Yes, I should. Do I have to try to reckon myself dead? Yes. Do I have to consider myself dead? Yes, I try to reckon myself dead to sin practically because it's true positionally. The Christian life is simply the struggle of living out positionally what is true practically or trying to live out practically what is true positionally. I will never do it perfectly. That's why I need the finished work of Jesus Christ for my salvation. Because if I look to what I'm doing practically as proof of salvation, I'm going to all, if I'm honest with myself, I would constantly be under the idea that I lost my salvation or that I'm not saved. Right? Either you believe you can lose your salvation or you have to believe you never got salvation. What, who wants to live that? Or you have to convince yourself that you're more moral than you think you are. And I think that's what a lot of Christians do. We convince ourselves that we're so better than everyone else, that we're more moral, we're better than everyone else, we're more godly than everyone else. But if you get to our heart and you get to us, that's why there's there's so many, so many, there's there's fighting in churches, there's disagreement, there's gossip, there's slander, there's backbiting, there's gluttony, there's 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 slothfulness, there's I mean, you go on and on and on and on bitterness unforgiveness, all, all of these things are ran rampant in the hearts of Christians because guess what? What is true positionally never demonstrates itself practically until Christ comes and we become, we are glorified and then what is true positionally will be made a reality. It will become a reality. But for right now, all we can do is struggle to live out to the best of our ability with the word of God obviously working together to try to live out practically what is true positionally. I do believe this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I do believe it occurred at salvation where I was placed into Christ and united with his death, burial, and resurrection. You can even argue water does symbolize that. But I believe all of this occurred as a, it, it's a real occurrence that occurred to me positionally at the moment of salvation. So I guess you can say it is salvation, but I think we should refer to it as the baptism of the Holy Spirit because then it explains the use of the term baptism. I think that makes some sense. All right, I'll stop right there. Members of Victory Baptist Church, please contact me if you have any questions. Those who are not members, ask questions because this will determine how we move forward on Sunday. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I'm going to stop right now because now I have to try to get myself back home without having any problems. All right. So thank you for listening. I apologize if I didn't do a great job, but I, I definitely wanted to get something done because I feel horrible if, uh, if I don't get something done um, on a church day. All right. So there you have it. Everyone have a great day. Feel free to contact me. God bless.